Well, um, church, we've been, we've been on a journey the last year and a half or so, uh, trying to get ourselves ready for uh, a new shepherd that God will um, to us. And uh, it's been quite a journey. And some of you have said, why are you still here? Why isn't the new guy here? <laughs> you know, you've been here, you've been here long enough. Um, but we come to a very exciting spot in that you have prayed for, I, some of you I know have prayed for a couple of years. Um, and uh, hard work has gone in by the transition team and by the pastoral search team. And um, I'm excited because I believe that God has brought to uh, Bethesda a young man and his wife and kids who will make a great shepherd for you. I firmly believe that with all my heart. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. Um, but anyway, um, Aaron, Pastor Aaron's with us. Come on up, bud. Um, and I just I want to say, Justine's down here, and he said I'd be in big trouble if I had you come up here, so just stay right there. They got two lovely little kids, uh, Augie, who's two, and Samuel, who's three and a half months, and uh, they are just a blessing. You'll, you'll get to meet them. And we also have some other special guests here. Uh, Justine's grandma and grandpa, uh, Tom and Eileen, are here somewhere, right there. And mom and dad, Justine's mom and dad are, are here, John and Jill. And Aaron's mom is here, way back there, um, Marcy. So we're, huh? I did. I even got them written down right here, and I've been, <laughs> I've been practicing the whole time we've been singing. So anyway, uh, Aaron's here to bring us uh, the word today and feed us, so feed us, bro. Here we go. Well, here we are. Good morning, everyone. My name is Aaron. And I'm a servant of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you because everything that has led up until this moment, though we see from man's perspective, we thank you for your word, which shows you, shows us your perspective. And we thank you that everything that's led up to this moment has been by your providence. You are in control of all things. And your word says, by Jesus, all things hold together. And so we trust in the promises and in the confidence of God in this moment. We thank you for your word, Lord, in this moment. You know me. I'm just your servant, but your word, Lord, it can do a wonderful thing. Let it transform hearts. Let it get to the matter at hand. Let it speak to us so that we would not remain unchanged, but changed when we walk out from here this morning. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, everyone, go ahead and open up your Bible to Mark 8, uh, 34, and uh, let's get to work. Uh, we are uh, looking at one of the most famous passages in Scripture uh, for the concept of discipleship. You should know this. Uh, when I was talking to my pastor friends about um, what, what to preach for a morning like this, uh, they said, pull out uh, your best sermon. I don't know if this is my best sermon. Uh, that will be for you to decide by the time this is over 
but this is also my life sermon. And here's what I know, that every single message that I preach, I must first preach it to myself, right, so that it, it impacts my own heart. And so I can look at this passage and say, this is the word that I would say probably sums up my life, the center of what I want to be about, uh, not only my uh, convictions, but also about how I should act. And so that's what we're going to look at. So as you're, as you're uh, going there, uh, I've gotten to talk with many of you over the course of the last few days. It feels a little bit like a fog. I'm sure over uh, next week I'll be able to go, okay, I remember meeting, having that conversation with that person and all of that. And it's been really good. Uh, some of you have heard me talk about um, my time uh, being a college student at Tabor. And that was really my first introduction at, at being at a town uh, that was, for me, I had been a, in a city of 1.2 million, and then I moved to a, a town that was about 3,500 uh, wet. And by wet, I mean that's when the college students showed up. And so it was a dramatic shift for me. I remember I still have, a, I still have that picture in my mind of seeing kids go to the pool and thinking, where are their parents? Someone is going to snatch that kid. And, and then I remember also driving down D Street, and people would, would wave as they're coming the opposite direction. And I thought, what's their problem? What, what do they want with me? And, and I have since found for my wife the, you know, you're actually supposed to wave back, right? And then you go to the churches, and you go to the churches, and people have last names like Warkentine and Rempel and Wolgamuth. Like, what is that? I never heard of that before. And realized there was this deep heritage in many of these Mennonite churches that I had known nothing about, knew nothing about. And you should know this, by the way, I am like my mother. I'm my mother's son that you never do things part of the way, you do things all of the way. It's like, it's all or nothing. And uh, so my mother, uh, a few years ago, uh, not because she had a ton of time on her hands, just, but because she just got interest, interested in something and went all the way, uh, she found, um, our, she got an Ancestry.com. You ever done that where you get into it and, and you, you can f trace all your family members back to the Mayflower? Realize we have one person from the Mayflower and that's, and, and then you, you get us. And so uh, my mom's from Pennsylvania. Guess what she found? Uh, she found that yours truly has Pennsylvania Mennonite in him. So how about that? Friesens, Funks, Lowens, you can add Garza to the list. I can play that Mennonite game too, right? But in all seriousness, I should say this too. Uh, this morning, Justine said, someone came up to me and said, thank goodness that this guy is married to a native South Dakota and I think he's gonna be okay, right? And so um, the, the truth though is, uh, for me, as much of, as I've been kind of a, someone who's adopted into the Mennonite brethren family, I think the thing for me that has been most transformative is to understand the rich history that comes from a period we know as the Protestant Reformation. That's what I, I'm a student of. And so um, I could, I could uh, wax eloquently, I don't know if I could do that eloquently, but I could wax something uh, about the history of the Anabaptists, period, a group of people known as the Anabaptists, but there's one guy I want to tell you about as we start this morning, this guy named Dirk Willems. And Dirk Willems was known as an Anabaptist, and to be an Anabaptist in this period meant this. Everybody from that day was born Catholic, which meant you were born you were, and you were baptized into the Catholic Church, into Christendom. But what was happening during this period is that people started to open up their Bible, and what they found instead was that, in particular, this one group, that it was only those who were baptized on confession of their faith that should undergo this, this act of baptism. So this group began to join together. And they understand baptism to be a, a sign or a, a pledge that a person has died to themselves 
and has pledged to live a new life in Jesus Christ. And so uh, the, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around, but there were severe consequences for having beliefs like this. You could lose your life. You could be drowned. You want to get baptized? Okay, we're really going to baptize you. And they, they drown them in the, in the river and do things like that. So our, our friend Dirk Willems, he had these convictions, and he was willing to stake his life on it. One evening in the cold of winter, uh, Willems was being chased by the thief catcher. The thief catcher had figured out who he was. He was an Anabaptist. He was an insurrectionist in, in this guy's mind, and so he needed to be taken out. And so he gro- goes across the town. He's running from this man, uh, Willems does, and he, and he sees the lake. The lake had frozen over uh, on the ice there. So he gets on the ice, sees that it's steady, and then he continues to, to run across. He runs across and looks back, and what he sees is the thief catcher has fallen down in between, has fallen down, the ice has given way, and, and, he is, and he is struggling for his life. Now think about it, what would you and I do if we were placed in that moment? If option A, you could let the man drown and you would save your life, or you could go back on that ice and you could save that man potentially at the risk of your own life. Well, if I'm telling you this story, what does Willems do, right? In a beautiful display of self-sacrifice, he puts one foot back onto the ice, another foot onto the ice, and he goes and saves the man who was his enemy. Takes him out of the water, and they're sitting there on the shore, and then the mayor and everybody else catches up. And the man who gave his life to save this man risked his own life, is now being put in bonds in prison. And I I have the story here. We don't have time to go into it, but the short version is this man then suffers a horrific, torturous death, and it ends with the executioner just saying, let's get it over with, dispatch the man with a quick death. You look at this story and go, what what an example of self-sacrifice. Or maybe we could ask, if we're honest, did this man waste his life, really? to give it up for another man. Had he, in fact, we could say, forfeited his own soul? That's the question I want us to ask this morning. When each one of us gets to the end of our own life, can we be able to, Lord willing, if I happen to be with you at at a hospital bedside, if you call me to be your pastor and I'm with you, will you be able to look at me and say, I have not wasted my life? I want every single one of us in this room to know the answer to that. And I think Mark 8 gives us a clear answer. So let's go ahead and read. I'll start in verse 34. And Jesus says uh, these words. He says, begins by saying, And calling the crowd uh, to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Verse 35, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful, nation, and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be also ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So what's happening here? Let me just set the table, set the scene. If you read through the Gospel of Mark, you realize this is a pivotal passage situated right in the middle of the 16 chapters that begin with the first half 
all about this teacher from Nazareth, miracle worker, doing all these incredible things and ticking off the Pharisees. That's what you have over here. And then in this moment, on the other side you have of this moment is a straight line of Jesus going right to the cross, which John 19 says, above him says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. But right here in this moment of Mark 8, it's like the hinge that holds those two things together. Who Jesus was as a miracle worker, but now his true identity on the other side. And in chapter 8, what has just happened is Jesus has said, who do you say that I am? And, and, and Peter says, it's always Peter, right? It's always Peter. And he says, you are the Messiah. But they think he's another kind of Messiah, a Messiah that would conquer Rome, would conquer the enemies of Israel. But Jesus had come to be a different kind of Messiah who would conquer the sin in our own hearts. And so in this moment, Jesus confronts them with the realization that we have as the readers that he had misunderstood what kind of Messiah he was. And he said, okay, if you really want to follow me, Peter, if you really want to follow me, 12 disciples, here's what it's going to cost you because this is where I'm going. This is where I'm going. And so let me reread verse 34 because that's where we're going to, I'm going to give you lay the land, what we're going to do here this morning. We're going to spend most of our time just on this one verse. Um, and then we'll spend a little bit of time on the, on the support that comes in the verses after this. But we're going to hang out here for a while. Here's what it says. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Did you notice in the beginning of verse 34, um, who is Jesus speaking to? Is he speaking to just the disciples? No, he's speaking to the crowds. And so the message that he has here is not for just the elders and the deacons and the Christian bloggers and, 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 the, and the pastor and the famous people who, who take the name of Jesus, but it's for the every single day Christian who Jesus says to you, this is the cost. If you want to follow after me, the baseline is that you must be willing, Bethesda, 2,000 years later, to give up your life. Now, We've been together for, for a few days now. If you haven't figured out, no one has ever accused me in my life of being um, uh, someone who is, uh, we could say, just calm and relaxed and just a chill guy. No one's ever accused me of that. I, I would probably be more characterized as more of an intense personality at certain points. Um, we'll see. You'll see uh, as we go on. But here's the question. Am I just being too intense? If you're willing to die to follow Jesus? That's the question. Or is Jesus actually saying that? I want us to be like, like, like Acts says, good Bereans, and, and check what I'm saying and see what the word actually says. So let's go through this. We give, we're given three commands, three imperatives. First one, if you want to follow Jesus, you must, one, deny yourself. Now, what does self-denial mean here? Uh, does self-denial mean uh, merely giving up chocolates or social media for Lent? Um, is self-denial, does that mean um, that I maybe deny myself of, of something here so I can get something else over here? One commentator puts it this way. He says, to deny yourself does not mean to live a life of self-denial uh, to not live a life of self-denial or self-discipline, far more than self-discipline. It is to renounce your claim to yourself, your desires, your ambitions, personal goals, and to submit to Christ as his slave. A little bit more than just uh, giving up chocolate for Lent, right? What Jesus is telling us here 
to Americans in the 21st century who we are prone. It's not just that smiling preacher down in Houston. It's all of us who are prone to that prosperity gospel that wants to speak to our own life and, and say, use this so that you can accomplish your own, your own means, your own dreams in the end. And Jesus says, man, you got to take those dreams and put them at the foot of the cross. Otherwise, they are idols in your life. And so self-denial isn't just giving up something. It's giving up your whole self. There's a guy from India that I got to meet about a month ago. His name was Ankit, Ankit Sharma. And, and uh, English wasn't his uh, first language, obviously. It was Hindi. And we got to know each other after a church service uh, just about a month ago. And he raised his hand for salvation. The question was asked, does anyone want to make that decision to follow after Jesus? And he says, yes, please. And so we, we talked afterwards. And I don't know if you've ever had one of these interactions before where um, you're sharing the gospel with someone and they're like, can you just hurry up, please, so I can meet Jesus? It was like one of those low-hanging fruit, just, just get it over with already. What do I need to do? He kept interrupting me saying, what do I need to do? And so I had the privilege of getting to lead him to the Lord. And um, then after that, we had a baptism conversation. I love getting to do that, meeting with people uh, about going public with their faith. That's what baptism is, going public. And we wrote out his testimony together, and we talked. But because his language was, was not English as a first language, we're talking, it probably took about three or four times longer than it would have taken with somebody else. And I found myself just, just going, how do I communicate what he's doing? And I found myself saying these words, when you believed on Kit, the old Ankit died. The new Ankit is here. Old Ankit dead. Old, old you is, is dead. The new you is here. And he finally clicked in his mind. And I think it was, that's what baptism symbolizes. You are buried with Christ. You're identifying with him in his death and with his resurrection. The old Aaron is gone. The old you is gone. And the new you is here, right? That's what it means to deny the whole self. That's first. Second, let me say this to you before I keep going. This is the cost of discipleship. Is this what you want? This is what Jesus is saying. So if you want to follow Jesus, secondly, you must be willing to take up your cross. Now, perhaps you've met someone uh, who has chronic back pain. Um, perhaps they are uh, dealing with some sort of repeated illness, something like that in their life. They have a difficult kid, and you look at them and you go, how are you feeling? And they go, it's just my cross to bear, right? It's just my cross to bear. How we have so domesticated this concept of cross-bearing. Um, really, the way we understand it is it's kind of like just dealing with some sort of hardship, right? But if a person from who had read Mark's gospel in the first century was transported to where we are in the 21st century, to hear about this concept of cross-bearing it would be absolutely shocking to them, kind of like this. If I showed up here, I'm not wearing a cross, but I, would, but I had a noose around my neck, you would think I have some kind of problem, right? If I showed up here and I had um, around my neck a beautiful necklace with, a, with an electric chair with, with uh, diamonds, um, you would look at that and go, that's kind of odd. He needs some help, right? If I had, had earrings or if you went and saw church buildings with, with, with these kinds of images on them, you would go, what is wrong with those people? I wonder if someone from Jesus' time, actually I'm quite confident, they would look at us and go, that's kind of morbid that you would have that. Because with, while the cross symbolizes hope for you and I, for them it would have symbolized shame, suffering, and death. Crucifixion. It's where we get the word excruciating from. 
Because we can't think of another word that, that, that more clearly demonstrates the absolute pain and suffering that someone can go under. And so if you were a Roman, the Roman, had, Roman person had perfected the ability to be able to torture someone and make an example out of them and hang them up outside of cities that they had conquered and said, this is what happens when you mess with Rome. And Jesus says, I'm going up on one of those. Do you really want to follow me? That's what he's saying. And I ought to shock you. I ought to shock you. This is the baseline for every single Christian who wants to sign up to follow Jesus. And so while Luke's gospel, like you don't see it here, but Luke's gospel says, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily. You don't get that here in Mark and in Matthew's account. We're, we're not getting like daily stuff putting to death, all that is, although that is true. Here the emphasis is, is willing to die. And so those words from Nazi dissidents, German Lutheran pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer really put this well when he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Doesn't that just get it right there? When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Now, I wonder if at this point you hear me saying all these things, and I can't help but think of the words of Jesus in John 6. It says this, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to leave? And Simon Peter, here he is again. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. My hope for you is that you don't turn back, but instead you can look at everything standing in front of you and say, where else am I going to go, Lord? You're all that I have. That's my hope for every single one of us in here. Where else am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Number three, if you haven't decided to give up yet, he just adds insult to injury. And he says, if you want to follow Jesus, you must be willing to, go figure, actually follow him. You actually, actually follow him. And when Jesus says something incredibly redundant here, think about what he's just said. If you want to follow me, and then he says one, and he says two. He says you must deny yourself, take up your cross. But then he says, you have to follow me. Kind of redundant to say, if you want to follow me, you got to follow me. And what is he communicating? He's communicating to Peter, if you want to be my follower, you have to go across that boat, get out of that boat, and walk on the water with me. And he's saying to us here in the 21st century, he's saying to Bethesda here right in this moment, that if you want to follow me, you can't just be a Christian in word only, but also with your feet. You must act upon it. And so being a follower of Jesus is being someone who denies himself, takes up your cross, and follows him. Now, to all my uh, theologian friends out there, um, all two of you, um, which should be actually all of us, we should think deeply about God's word and put it into action. I wonder if you've noticed a problem that we've, we've gotten to here. Uh, on the one hand, I've been saying we need to obey and take up our cross, but maybe some of us are thinking, well, I thought the preacher I heard growing up and I thought the Bible that I read said, I am justified by faith alone. Put my faith in Jesus. Doesn't Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 say this? It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, Aaron. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. Am I saved by cross-bearing obedience, or am I saved by my faith in Jesus? Here's what I want to say to you. I do believe Ephesians is absolutely true. Um, but I would want to say two things. First of all, let us never assume, just baseline in how we interpret this book, this is so key that we get this, that we never assume that the words of Paul contradict the words of Jesus in the Gospels. And this is something that people in our day who call themselves even Anabaptists are prone to do. 
No, instead, we ought to have this understanding and how we look at this book, that the same Holy Spirit who inspired the, the Pauline epistles is the same Holy Spirit who inspired the gospels that talk about Jesus. We have one divine author who has given us a true, infallible, and inerrant word. So let that be our baseline when we start with things and go, I don't trust myself, I trust the word. Let me start there, number one. Number two, I think I read somewhere, though I absolutely believe that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. I think I read somewhere that faith without works is dead, right? Faith without works is dead. When you read Mark's gospel, here's what you are going to find, that the demons believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and that clearly isn't good enough. And so maybe instead we ought to say, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will, and here's the key, show you my faith by my works. If I could put it in one sentence, I'd put it this way. You are saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. You are saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. It demonstrates its reality and how it acts. And so if the act of God calling you is that act of grace, I'm calling you to be my disciple, there's the grace. Your obedience in cross-bearing is the demonstration that the fire of faith is living within you. Put in another statement like this. I think we'll, we'll have it up on the screen. True faith in Christ demonstrates itself in the obedience of cross-bearing. You're gonna see faith on display if you really have it. I wonder if maybe for some of us you go, okay, Aaron, why are you making such a big deal out of this? Uh, I mean, I get it. I know what my Bible says. Uh, here's what I would say to you. You see me, I'm about 30 years old, and I have friends of mine who I started this journey with. I went to the Christian school with them. I went to church with them, and they're no longer here, many of them. Why are so many who are young people, grew up in church, and then after high school, after that season, perhaps in college, walked away? This is very personal for me. If you ask some of those people, I think many of them would say this to you. They would say, when I grew up in church, I remember hearing about Jesus, and I didn't want to go to hell, so I believed in Jesus so that I would go to heaven. You heard that story before? I believed in Jesus so I wouldn't go to hell, right? And for them, belief in Christ was nothing really more than fire insurance. You've heard that term before. Believing in Jesus was just nothing more than fire insurance. You want to know why so many young people from my generation have walked away from the faith? It's not because we haven't had better fog machines or light systems. It's not because we haven't had enough programs. Oh, if we had another program, then the masses would come into the churches in America. That would solve our problems. It's not because of that. And it most certainly is not because the guy who yaps in front of you every single Sunday, nothing to do with Randall, speaking about myself, is, is so awesome or cool. Y'all, I just got these suits from JCPenney two weeks ago. I'm just a guy that wears t-shirts and, and jeans. I've never been accused of being cool. I'm not gonna start. And so if I look at all of these things, if that's not the reason why people have walked away from the church, here's what I've actually found. It's that they just became indifferent because the gospel had no bearing on their life. It didn't have any relevance to what they were actually going through. And surprise, what kind of of course that's the case. What kind of truncated gospel are we preaching? Emaciated, um, emaciated, truncated gospel are we preaching to ourselves? When we only talk about what Jesus has done on the cross as has, having any relevance for us the second after we croak and not actually having relevance for what we're doing right here and right now. I think the gospel has incredible relevance, yes, for eternity, but yes, for this moment that I'm living right now in the present. That's what I believe. 
And so when I look at that, I, no wonder so many young people will go, man, I believe in Jesus, I got that problem solved, so let, let grace abound more and more, right? So I have that kind of mindset. I'm do what I want, want to do right here in this moment. And what we do when we do that is we cheapen God's grace. Bonhoeffer, who I mentioned a moment ago, puts it this way. He says, cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without repentance. It is baptism without the discipline of community. Let that hit you if it needs to hit you. It is the Lord's Supper without confession of sin. Sin. It is absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without cross, grace without the living incarnate Jesus Christ. It is the understanding of thinking that somehow though the, cro- the cross cost God his son, it would not cost you or I anything. It ought to convict us when we look at what Jesus has done and we look at him and say, I want, the, I, I, I want eternity, but I'm not willing even to follow you right now. What a shame that someone, as a church guy, I'm saying this, I grew up in church, that someone could live months, years, even decades of their entire life. And when someone like me gets in front and starts talking about the cross, they would tune out and think, that's probably for my deadbeat cousin down the street. And that has nothing to do with me. Or they would think that, that that was important for the day I got saved, but it has no bearing on my life right now. What I want to say to you, friends, is that what Jesus has done on the cross for me was, is good news for me. Yes, not only the moment when I die, but also the moment when I die to self right here on this earth. I want to just tell you now the benefits that you have of this cross-bearing Jesus and what he's done for you. Let's just let this wash over you in this moment. I don't know, I, I know that we can show up to church with our starch collars and put on our church faces, but I don't know every single situation we're dealing with in this moment. But I want to tell you the benefits, if you're a Christian, of what Jesus has for you because he took up his cross. It is good news right now to know that though you may be steeped in temptation and falling into incredible addiction, Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He understands your temptations, do you realize? far better than you do because he actually resisted them all the way to the end. And so are you dealing with temptation? Are you falling into sin? Turn to him. Second, it's good news right now to know that Jesus, who bore his cross for you, is interceding to the Father in this moment, if you really think about it, on your behalf. He is interceding to the Father for you. You don't have to be your own defense attorney. You don't have to be the one who defends yourself. Jesus is the mediator between God and man, and he can do a far better job of that than you or I can. So release yourself, friend. The one who bore his cross for you is a better defender of you than you are of yourself. Stop your self-justification process, project, and see that he has already justified you. There's nothing you can do to change that. Third, it is good news to know right now that he has actually set an example for us for how we should love our enemies. He is the one who said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Do you have enemies? Do you have family members who are incredibly difficult? Do you have a deadbeat boss that is giving you a very hard time right now? Maybe you're that boss that's giving people a hard time right now. Be convicted. Um, Do you know church people who should know better, but they are causing you so much grief? then have this mindset. Treat them the same way Jesus treated you when you were his enemy and showed grace to you. Fourth, it is good news right now to know that though our following him 
may lead to unimaginable pain and suffering. He is the one who has told us, though you may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is what? With me. He is with me. And so have you lost someone precious to you? Have you been in incredible turmoil? I have good news. Jesus never left you in that moment. I will never leave you or forsake you. Fifth, and it is good news to know that the source of your cross-bearing for every single one of us, it doesn't come from your own strength, but it comes from his own strength. First Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Congratulations. You don't have to do it all on your own, but instead you can turn to the one who says, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When you see all of these things that Jesus has done for you and the benefits of the gospel, see how all these benefits I just mentioned aren't just for what happens in eternity. They're benefits for how we ought to live right now. And so if Jesus has given you these benefits, and he's given all this to you, shouldn't it change how we live in this present moment? So I would submit this to you. And to every single one of us, what we need is not better programs, we don't need better shows, we don't need cooler pastors, but what we need is a deeper understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And having a right understanding of that will get us through this present moment as we look forward to the hope in Christ that we have in eternity to come. That, that's what I think. And so in all of these things, self-denial, cross-bearing, following him, the ground of the benefits that we have in Jesus, this is what it gives to us. I told you I was going to spend most of my time on one verse. Okay. But now let me read verse 34 and following, 35 and following. And we'll move quickly here. Whoever would save his life, and Jesus now gives the consequences. Okay. If you're going to follow me, this is what's going to happen. If you're not going to follow me, here's what's going to happen. And here's what he says. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for the sake of the gospel and for my sake will save it. For for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? In verse 38, lastly, forever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and of the holy angels. So let's look at this first way. If you choose to say, I will not follow Jesus, this is what Jesus says to you. He says, here's the consequence, you will lose your soul. I wanna ask you a couple questions. First question I wanna ask you is, what does it profit you if you gain everything that this world has to offer at the expense of your own soul? In my mind, and maybe in your mind, it's really easy to assign that to someone who like, lives in Hollywood. Like, I'm not a Kardashian. I mean, give me a break, right? You look at those guys, they're you know, five-carat pagans is how we would look at them. And we would say, I would never be like that person. And we're so insidious, we're so good at our sin that we have, do a great job of comparing ourselves to others. But let me ask you some questions. Perhaps out of the brokenness of personal rejection, you've sought authority in your own life so others would notice you. Here's the great thing about preaching for me on day one here. I don't know all of you that well. So I can say something like this, which I, we'll see if I can say it in the future. I will. Um, perhaps you're an elder, perhaps you're a deacon, perhaps you may be someone who's a leader here in ministry. But the reason you're actually on that, whatever team you're on and leading it, is because you've sought authority as an idol and not actually to serve God's church. And God is not honored by that. And in fact, you're doing it at the expense of your soul. 
Well, let me ask you this. Perhaps the essence of your career, the, to be a better farmer, to be a, a better nurse, to be a better teacher, all of those things, you have sought to prioritize those things for the ease of life. Have you ever noticed that you're never done with your work? <laughs> There's always more to do. You're never satisfied fully. Or perhaps you've sought relationships with others only so that you would fulfill some sort of need you have and you use people as a means to accomplish your own ends, to further your own ambitions. None of these examples are bad in and of themselves. Seeking authority, good friendships, doing a good job in our career. But as Augustine says, if you order those things in such a way that they are over the love of God, you make those things into an idol and you distort them. And what happens is, you distort yourself at the expense of your own soul. Let's ask you another question. What, when your soul is lost, what could you possibly do to buy it back? After Esau gave up his birthright to Jacob for, for a bowl of ramen afterwards, there's nothing you could do to get it back. I don't want you to get to the end of your life and say, I've wasted it. I don't want us to look at our own selves and go, man, I have put my ladder against the wrong wall and I've climbed up and I've seen that nothing is there. This is the cost of not following Jesus. But let's flip it around. If you do in fact lose your life in costly discipleship to Jesus, here's the consequence. You will find it. And that's what Jesus tells us. Death is just a doorway to seeing Christ Jesus our Lord. What good it is, news it is for us to know that no matter what I may go through in this present moment, no matter what challenges I may face, at the end of all things, I'm gonna go through a doorway and I'm gonna see Christ Jesus, my Lord. And that's a reason to praise him. And finally, Jesus says, number three, he gives us this last consequence. He says, he will be ashamed of you on judgment day if you reject him. There's two things I never wanna hear. One, fine, have it your way from the Lord. And secondly, depart from me, I never knew you. But on the other hand, what joy it is for every single person in here to be able to look at Jesus at the end of all things, and he will say, regardless of how good you were, he'll look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Not because of what I have done or what you've done, but because we've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. I love this passage. I love this passage because I am, I'm a church kid. I grew up in the church. I grew up going to Awana. I, had, I did all the verses with my mother. I uh, went through the whole booklet and all of that multiple times. I had enough patches and pins to look like a four-star general because I was doing, doing all of it right. But what I found by the time I got to high school is that I had built a foundation upon pleasing others, upon knowing Jesus, about Jesus, but I didn't know him. I'll put it this way to you. I was a, a young, lost theologian. I could fool all of you <laughs> to thinking I was a Christian, but I didn't know him. I knew about him, but I didn't know him. But it was a friend named Andrew Steuben who came to me, found me. He told me the parable of the sower and the seed. And he told me that, that, that you, are not the, you are not the ground that is producing a good crop. You're living one way on Sunday and then fooling everybody else throughout the week and actually living for yourself. And so I have found since Jesus got a hold of me in those moments is that he was jealous for me this whole time. I'm a church guy, but I didn't know him. And when he found me, he said, I don't want just part of you. I want all of you, right? I want all of you. And I'll tell you that all of me pursuit has led me from 
Texas to Kansas to California to South Dakota. Oh my goodness. And now I'm here right in front of you. And I promise you this, and I don't mean this in the wrong way, that if I would have known everything that was going to happen 14 years ago when I met him, if I would have known the path and the challenges that I would have taken to get to where I am now, I would not have done it. Thank goodness the Lord does not tell us the things that we want to know in the future. He says tomorrow, you can barely hear until tomorrow, uh, today, let tomorrow take care of itself. If I would have known the challenges and, and, the, and even the suffering that would have happened, I wouldn't have done it. But thank goodness that he has been with me the whole step, all the way away. And so my heart for you is I'm looking at a church full of people that I know many of you have been a part of this place for, for decades. I love I non-Christians. I love unbelievers, but I got a special place in my heart for those who, who, who know a lot about Jesus, who think they're saved, but they're not, because I was once one of them. And my hope for you is if you have not counted the cost, today would be the day that you would do so. And you would be able to know that when he found me, I could look at Jesus and see everything that, that he has called me to do, but first what he has first done himself. That he, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He who was high got low for me and you. But that's that's not the end of the story. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's a reason to praise him and say, look at what he has done for me. And if he's done all these things for me, I can get it outside of myself and the cross-bearing and the suffering I may be dealing with, and, I may, and I'm able to have this understanding. Maybe I have this understanding. The primary demonstration of God's mercy towards you is not the evidence of your life, but it is in the evidence of the son of God's life that has already been lived for you. And so when I see what he's done, I can take up my cross and I can say with the words of the old missionary who said, I am immortal until my work is done. Let us serve him. Let's pray. you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, .org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Europe. Have a blessed day.